Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. We're talking about dung beetles today. It's a real fun one. I am in my car recording a little intro. I'm on a nine-hour drive from Huntsville, Alabama to uh, Bentonville, Arkansas, before heading to uh, Tulsa, then Wichita, then Santa Fe, and adding some uh, dates, it looks like in L.A. I'll have my first uh, trial run of adding visuals to my show for my warm-up show at Area 15 in Vegas, the residency. You can find out more at area15.com. If you want to keep up to date with all of the new warm-up shows I'm announcing uh, which is going to be mostly around the New England area, go to shanemoss.com, join my email list, and we've been uh, blasting out some updates as new cities come in. So check that out. And, yeah, this is a fun episode. This is uh, with the uh, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, a NIMBIOS program. This is, uh, so NIMBIOS is the National Institute of Mathemat- Mathematical and Biological Science, and I've been uh, really fortunate to be working with them uh, and the One Health Initiative there as well, because it's a cool way that we're able to see all of the interdisciplinary approach that is happening just in one university. Uh, we had... Uh, just people that are uh, like right next to each other, um, right right across the hall or whatever. Their uh, their offices are um, all in one department. There's uh, there's topics like mass extinction and dung beetles and um, using mathematics to understand. Um, pandemics and things like that. So it's a really cool way to see the how all of these topics fit together and the seemingly unrelated things um, all mesh together in this crazy existence. So uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Super fun. Quick note, we had a little audio issue right at the end. Um, just the last minute or two, our mics went out, and so there was captured off the camera instead. I am hoping to do a lot more in-person um, interviews. We probably we won't have an episode next week. I'm going to try to get... I'm just so busy on the road. Um, but uh, with the Vegas residency, if it gets extended, or you know, if I end up in Vegas or L.A., my hope is that I will be uh, building a studio finally and having um, guests uh, come. Like If it's Vegas, there's scientists flying through town for conferences and stuff all of the time. And so it'll just be a cool opportunity to uh, do... I love doing in-person interviews so much more and having a higher quality... uh, video and audio product like this episode is. So 
been wanting to make this happen for a while, so uh, we will see. Thanks for the support on Patreon.com. Shane Moss, that's how I pay for this editing, and uh, and hopefully get to build a studio and that sort of thing. And it's how we keep this show ad-free. So enjoy the Dung Beetle talk today. Real fun one. Thanks so much, guys. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Joining me today is Kimberly Sheldon. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Thanks for having me. I'm really honored. I am so excited. We have a Dung Beetles episode. Yes, Dung Beetles. So I normally, <laughs> uh, I, I start nearly every episode by kind of hearing about your background and say, we're going to do that. But I have, I have a, a couple quick uh, tangents just because I want to get these out of the way and I don't want it to like maybe interrupt our flow. Okay. I, I have a... Uh, so uh, there, there's a uh, girl I start I very, very new, started dating, a um, couple weeks old is all, talking on the phone last night. She's asking me why I was doing it. I'm like, oh, one of the, I'm uh, interviewing a dung beetle researcher tomorrow. And she's like, what are dung beetles? My question is, deal breaker <laughs> or... <laughs> Is that, is it okay to not know what dung beetles are? Because it's not just about dung beetles. It's like, have you never seen a nature documentary? Like, how do you not know what dung beetles are? It's true that in every nature documentary, David Attenborough, right? Talking about the dung Uh, beetles. It's an iconic, classic. You think it's acceptable for an adult human being to not know? What do you... So my take, the reason I think it's acceptable, <laughs> okay. she's curious. She okay, wants she, to know right, what's a dung right, beetle, right? right? So right. there, I give her a lot of credit for being curious. Now you <laughs> listeners are off the hook, those of you uh, those of you that have missed out somehow on knowing what dung beetles are. You're in for a treat on this show. Dung beetles are interesting because they're, they're two things that most people don't like individually, and you put them together, and most people... Like it. <laughs> Most people think beetles are kind of gross. Like you see a beetle in your house or something, a lot of people would be grossed out. I love all beetles, by the way. Mm-hmm. But most people have that reaction. Uh, dung, um, I'm also on, the, I'm <laughs> with most people in the anti-dung uh, <laughs> team. <laughs> Um, most people not a big fan of uh, thinking about seeing any dung, dung related things but something about combining the two it's like it breaks some it it's like it, it it it's like it reaches a level of like disgust or aversion or something that it breaks to through into some sort of beautiful <laughs> new novel thing what do you think i have never thought about it that way but you're well, right now we I get mean, to there is something about dung beetles that people love any i mean and every age, right? I talk to middle school students yeah. and I am the person they remember all year long. Oh, the woman who studies the poop eating dung beetles, you know, <laughs> like, but yeah, there's something, but you're right. They are separately 
kind of gross to people and together yeah. fascinating. Maybe it's the nature documentaries. It might be, but it's also, <laughs> well, they also, they're like tidy in their own. Well, at least when you see, is it? it's like you're detached because it's this like perfectly spherical mm -hmm. ball that's being rolled and it kind of detaches. It, it's, it looks tidier than, than <laughs> just normally. a pile of poop, yeah, which it starts yeah. off as, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So there's something, and that that, and also I think that there there's something inherently compelling about dung beetles because well, we talk about evolution quite a bit on this show, and and um, and it they they just intuitively can kind of help people look through that alien anthropologist lens. And it's it's an easy, I often use them as a reference for thinking about how our preferences evolve because we kind of take for granted why we like the things that we eat or smell or the mates that we're attracted to and what we're attracted to about them. Whereas dung beetles kind of flips every one of our aversions on its head and this yep. is their whole life. This is everything to them. Yep, yep. And Looking for the poop, living in it, eating it. <laughs> every, every. Mating in it, yeah. Exactly. Yep. So, all right. I just wanted to get that uh, out of, uh, that's everything that comes to mind when I start thinking about dung beetles that just like, I, I can sit around contemplating for hours and, and have for someone that doesn't research dung beetles. I've spent a lot of my life thinking about them. Uh, how did you get into researching dung beetles? Why don't you now go back and kind of set up your background? Yeah. Um, so I am an associate professor here at the University of Tennessee in ecology and evolutionary biology. And sort of my my start to things, I was getting a bachelor's degree at the University of Michigan in natural resources. And I knew, you know, that I sort of wanted to be like Diane Fossey or Jane Goodall, but I didn't know what that meant. I just saw that there were these women who were out in the field. That's what I wanted to do. And they were in the tropics. And that's what I was also interested in. And so it was sort of a really roundabout way. I did all these sort of field jobs working with plants and working with birds and as I was heading toward graduate school, I thought that I was going to study birds. And I had been, I had been, I should say, I was studying physiology of birds across latitude. Um, so this comparative work looking at, you know, why do birds in the tropics have fewer eggs in their nest than birds in the, in the temperate region? We call this differences in life history. Mm. And so we were thinking, well, maybe there's something different about their physiology and that um, maybe the birds down in the tropics put a little bit more into self-maintenance rather than each sort of clutch. The idea of being Because of parasitic load, maybe in the tropics? That's exactly what I was studying. Ooh, Very bingo. good. I was looking at immunology. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucky so, guess. Yeah, I was looking at a lot of blood smears under the microscope to look at which ones were parasitized and, and sort of what response they mounted. Um, hmm. And so that's kind of where I was heading in graduate school. I thought, if I'm gonna study birds and I'm gonna do something with physiology and across latitude. But then the questions that I had were really about temperature and how temperature impacts sort of the traits and the adaptations of organisms. And I realized, well, it's going to be kind of tough to work with birds because you can't really heat and freeze birds and you can't manipulate them in the same way that you can with other organisms. I mean, technically you could heat or freeze a bird, but yeah, it's technically so inappropriate, right? right. <laughs> um, so, so I went down to, so I, I finished my first year of graduate school and 
during that year, I was excited about these research questions and I decided, okay, I'm going to work with plants. And I had done a couple of plant studies, but I, I had these, these plants that I was supposed to go down to Ecuador and find. And I had this list of plants. I get down there. I'm at this research station and it's the tropics and I'm not a botanist. Uh, it was a terrible idea. A, yeah. <laughs> As I'm listening to this, cause I have the same predicament because I'm, I'm so into mammals, birds, insects, you know, all, all of that. But when it comes to anything, plants, botany, like I'm always like, I got to take some bot. I would love to, the idea of learning botany and being able to identify what trees are behind us or what plants on mm -hmm. in the background here is something that really appeals to me and overwhelms me at the same time. Yeah. So the idea of like, I'm going to go to the tropics and find yeah. you know, three or four specific plants. Yeah. And I was basically in the Amazon, right? Like peak of biodiversity. Yeah. And so I couldn't find these plants. And I was down there at this biological station there were of course other graduate students and they were in the same like you know they had just finished their first year and they already were working on their projects like one was going out catching her caterpillars and bringing back like bagfuls of caterpillars and another student was off working with her social spiders and I would go out with different people during the day and then just you know go back to my <laughs> to my room at night Your like weep into my life. pillow quietly <laughs> because I had no nothing going on I couldn't find the plants I I was nervous right and yeah so Couple of months went by and the student group came down and they were gonna go out and trap beetles and dung beetles. And I had nothing else to do because I things That's... weren't working out. So and like I said, I was going out with anyone how, I could possibly long, go with. How long were you looking for these plants and coming up short? Basically two it was two, about two months because I was down there for two and a half months. <laughs> two months, <laughs> nothing. You're desperate. desperate. Someone comes, they're looking for beetles. You're receptive. You're open so to I'm anything. Like, You're grasping yeah. at straws. So I go out and I trap these beetles with them. And I started looking up a little bit more literature on dung beetles and realized, well, people have used them in thermal physiology studies. And then I realized, well, the, the beetles that occur in the tropics, they have closely related relatives up in the temperate region. So places like Arizona and, and um, well, here in Tennessee. Um, and so that's when I realized, okay, I can do a comparative study with these dung beetles. And so my big success my first year of graduate school was coming back to the lab and saying, I'm going to work with dung beetles. And, <laughs> Did they ask you what happened ago. to the plant thing? <laughs> they didn't even Not, ask? No, I don't. They just <laughs> forgot? You just did such a good job? Well, that's what, if you bring dung beetles into the equation, people forget they every discussion or whatever arrangements that you had before that. Yeah. They're just so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, truly. But yeah, it was, it was a real, for me, it was a real coup because it was very nerve wracking. And I'm, and I, I joke about crying in my pillow every night, but it was a lot of, a lot of tears down there. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of intense when you're a grad student, you're trying to find your, what's your, what are you going to study, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I, I would love to have a good plantless pillow cry sometime. <laughs> I've tried to like work one up, but it, <laughs> it sounds therapeutic. I mean, I guess not for months at a time, but yeah. I don't, if I went home tonight, I'd have had a cry <laughs> about coming up short on plants. I feel like it would get other stuff out of me. Yeah. Um, so that was 20 years ago. Almost. You got into dung beetles. Yeah. Whew, so you've been in the dung beetle game for two decades about. It's coming up, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still learning all sorts of stuff, I imagine. They yeah. seem endlessly, well, all of life is mm -hmm. the fractal-like nature of complexity and everywhere that you look and blah, blah, blah. But dung beetles especially, it seems like uh, uh, they're 
they're just so darn interesting. How many different species of dung beetles are there? About 6,000. About 6,000. Yeah. Are they, um, are, are they, so you found them in the tropics first. Uh, tropics has everything though. Anything you want. I mean, whether you can find, find the plant or not, there's another story, but it's there. It exists there. Um, but you're, you're probably not finding dung beetles in the Arctic or something. Um, right. And, uh, so, so where are dung beetles generally found in most regions in the world, that, like uh, at least near, near-ish the equator? Or are, are they... Uh, well, I guess first we need to know how old are dung beetles. Mm-hmm. About 115 million years old. That's new. They're babies. Relatively new, yeah. 150 Apparently they started million? Out, yeah, I guess they started out on 15 or 50? 115, about, Fast. is what they've They're babies. estimated. Yeah. Okay. So okay. I guess they got their start on dinosaur poop, and then 65 million years ago, with the decline of dinosaurs and sort of the increase in mammals, there were some that switched over, and then there's a diversification during the sort of rise of the mammals. When was Pangaea? Long, well oh, before that. I think before all that, yeah. And dung beetles have found their way around every everywhere? They're, oh, maybe. But, well, I guess on uh, Gondwana land, maybe. Actually, I don't know. I don't know. When was Pangaea? I don't know. That's a good question. I'll talk to a Pangaea person <laughs> and find that out, and then I'll report back. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> we could Google it, but it'll be yeah. easy. It'll be more complicated and fun my yeah. way. No more Googling. <laughs> I need to find researchers to tell them. So, <clears throat> well, that's, I, well, I just asked, Pangea was before that. It would I have think been, so too, yeah. yeah. But how did, because if they're in, because they're- They're on every continent they're in with every the continent. exception of Antarctica. So have they convergently evolved in places? Like when there's dung around, beetles will just start something's going to pop up that can make use of this. I think, yeah, they're, well, no, they should, because they're, I'm pretty sure it's a monophyletic group, the true dung beetles, or the scarabaeinae, um, which is a subfamily of the scarabaeidae. So scarab beetles, you know, they is all the are, big, like, super family. They're all one brand, uh, uh, arose from the same? Yeah, and all those are all the true dung beetles. Wow. Um, either and other. they made it to different continents. I don't understand how that happened. Yeah, actually, you know, that's a really good question, because I'm thinking about Australia, trying to figure out how they got there. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I should actually. Unless it was recent. I should know that, but I, well, I haven't, I haven't uh, thought as much about that. There's too many things. To, this, this really demonstrates how much there is to know about, about dung beetles. beetles. Yeah, yeah. But, um. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, how they because the ones in Australia are quite different. You know, they're they're feeding on dung that's really different than sort of the big herbivore dung that was here, like the bison dung, and there it's it's a lot more sort of drier pellets from kangaroos, from kangaroos et cetera, and wallabies, and yeah, yeah. yeah. There really are. I was in my head. I was like, oh, don't say kangaroos. Such a cliche. But I'm like, no, I've been to Australia. There's <laughs> kangaroos everywhere. It's real. That's. <laughs> I haven't been there, so. Go to I'll Kangaroo you Island. That. You have to like. You have to rent a. They they um they decided to. There's this island in Australia that had. Uh, they decided to like import. Koala bears are very, very picky eaters. There's like 20,000 species of eucalyptus. It's all like mm-hmm. all poisonous. That's why mm-hmm. nothing eats it. And there's like, tw- there's like 
twenty to two hundred somewhere. There's not that many species that they will eat,、mm-hmm. and they like put some on some island. They're like stick a couple koala bears on there, and like maybe a couple kangaroos <laughs> for fun on this island, and then they just exploded、yeah. everywhere. They didn't have any predators,、yeah. and so if you go there, you have to literally、uh, you have to get a car with a what, the rack、oh, system on the front because、yeah. you're just like. Running over wallabies and kind of, it's just like a sea of wallabies that you're having to drive、wow. through,、um, and so it must、I'll、be dung beetle、uh, haven.、Probably. So so because so because that's that's interesting. Why would why would why would diversity of dung shape? The morphology of a dung beetle so much in my mind. If you're a dung beetle, you just like break off whatever you want, roll it up, and then、yeah. you're on your way. Well, I think you know that, and that's the thing is with all of these sort of different types of dung, it opens different niches, right? So、mm. you can get some that are specialized. And this is actually one question that's sort of still out there about in the tropics. We always think about dung beetles as sort of generalists, like oh, they'll kind of take any kind of poop, right?、Mm. Um, but We do know that a lot of organisms, like in the tropics, are a little more specialized, and so there's this idea that hey, maybe actually, dung beetles in the tropics are specialized on, you know, tapir poop or spectacled bear poop, and if we do lose one of those big charismatic megafauna like a spectacled bear, will we have you know this、uh, loss of a particular species of dung beetle? That's, and but we don't know yet. We don't really actually know if if these dung beetles are specialized, but. Ultimately, dung. Different types of dung provide different niches, and so we see the evolution, you know, of these these different beetles or these different species to actually use resources that are available. And sometimes it's an open niche, right? Like if there's a new type of dung out there, they just explode and、yeah. suddenly, like, yeah, have a heyday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's like, yeah, like.、Um, Sloth moths. There's a species of moths that is particular particular to sloths that don't exist anywhere else.、Yeah. That's the only.、Yeah. There's all sorts of moths, but one that have made that niche、yep. on on their backs、Did、and you, the little ecosystem. Did you know that there are dung beetles that hang out on sloths? Uh, I think I maybe、okay. didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. It, well, they got all they got all they sorts got- of soupy algae. <laughs> They got a whole、uh, little ecosystem in there. The whole yeah, ecosystem, yeah. yeah. But I, I guess I didn't. If you would have gave me a quiz, true or false, beetles on sloths, I probably would have said true, but I wouldn't、yeah. have been sure of myself. Yeah,、well, are they particular to yeah, sloths? Yeah, they're a species, and and wait, they some, live like they live they, their lives. Yeah,、like? they hang out on the sloth, and there are also、um, some beetles in Australia that hang out on wallabies, and they have hooked tarsi, so the front legs are actually hooked. To, to fit around the hairs, so they're hanging onto the hairs, and then when the sloth comes down, you know, once a week to defecate, they jump off, and same thing with bullies. Larvae in the poop. Yeah. The, oh wow!、Yeah. So oh my goodness, now we're gonna be. But, but these aren't dung beetles. They're dung beetles. The, wait, these are. Oh my gosh! <laughs> you just blew my mind.、Uh, all right. <laughs> so they live. So they're hooking in because sloths have the specialized hairs for trapping water. Uh, that are like different than other、yeah. hair, and the、animals. wallabies. They they're using. They just have a hooked tarsi because they've evolved these hooked tarsi to hang onto the fur of these animals. So the sloths and the wallabies. And the wallabies.、Yeah. Do wallabies have that same weird hair? I don't think so, but you know they're just. They just. Yeah. <laughs> opposite. 
sides of the world. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then, so... Uh, dung beetles on sloths. <laughs> I know more about sloths than I know about dung beetles. Uh, so, uh, but I didn't know this. Um, so, sloths going down once a week mm-hmm. um, to poop for somewhat mysterious reasons probably mm-hmm. re- probably related to the moths on their back and and what mm-hmm. what benefit they're conferring to the sloths is a little trickier to figure out if there is one or if it's a historical thing or mm-hmm. maybe there was possibly my thing lately i've been considering maybe there was a predator along the way that's been lost through time that they were doing some sort of thing that they were there might be something missing from the picture that we that isn't yep, being considered, mm-hmm. um, and with with sloths. But they're going all so they're going all the way down once a week, expending like 20, 30 percent of their energy, risking life and limb to be possibly <laughs> eaten by a cat. To, yeah. And then and uh, uh, and then these dung beetles are hopping off, going in their dung. I mean, you're a dung beetle. You made it to the dung. Why? Uh, why are they jumping back on? What are they getting out of the sloths back? They like the algae and stuff. Well, I think the big thing is is that dung is this resource that's limited in space and in time, and it's sort of, so it's random, right? You don't really know when an animal's going to defecate. But now so, you have, you know, it's going to. You hang on to this thing. Yeah. You're going to get a guaranteed meal every yeah. week. So there's been this selection, right, over wow. time for dung beetles, whatever species, to get there fast and to get away with the dung, right? And so everything from you know some of these these dung beetles that use like the Milky Way at night, they're you you know there's been evolution that has led to them using the Milky Way. To actually go in a yeah. straight line, right? The idea is get away from get get your little piece of the pie and get away as fast as you yeah. can. So with these beetles that are are hanging on to the to the sloths, the idea is you know they're going to get to that dung resource first because they're with the sloth. Yeah, yeah. fresh fresh out of the factory. Yeah. I have a cooler story for you. Even than you that. have a cooler story. So, yeah. So these um, brown titty monkeys in Peru. <laughs> so what they- are they called? <laughs> It was a T-I-T-I. Okay. <laughs> the brown titty monkeys right. in Peru. We'll go with it. So they have these dung beetles that hang out right by their anus. And yeah, so these monkeys that. are up in the in the canopy, and when they defecate, the dung beetle grabs on mm-hmm. to the dung and actually rides the dung all the way down to the forest floor, and then it's it's got its piece of the pie. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, that's... Okay. Mm-hmm. But that's like rather random. They're just sitting there They're waiting. Sitting. Whereas on the sloths, they get to be like, well, you don't need to be vigilant. You just know that when the sloth goes down, then it's yeah. it's, it's time to get into action. Then you just yeah. have a week to chill. In the meat. Wait, what's the what's the speaking of life history? What's the life history of a dun- well, How long are these? Uh, how long's your average species living? Is there a wide, wide range? There is. And it usually depends on the size of the beetle. So the smaller beetles don't have a long lifespan. The larger beetles take longer to develop, and then they have a longer lifespan. So like the phaneus um, that I work with around here can live for multiple years. So they're put into a dung ball in the sort of spring or summer of the first year. They overwinter typically in like the third instar larvae and pupate and merge as adults. Wait, oh, uh, uh, I want to get all this clear. I don't want to miss oh, the detail. Yeah. Uh, well, I just want to make sure I have it right in my head. So when you said, uh, uh, wait, so, so you said, wait, are they born in 
in the, when you said they start in the in the dung in the spring, adults start in the dung in the snow. The the offspring, larvae, yeah, the offspring. yeah, yeah. Okay. And okay. So, um, and you know, this this brings up actually, you know, in terms of of breeding, there are three different types of sort of breeding guilds in dung beetles. So okay. the rollers that you talked about earlier. That Those are, are the famous ones. I know there's, I know there's more. Right. right. And then there are the dwellers that just hang out in the poop. And you find, there. you get, you yeah. dig a thing. You got uh, the, the, probably the male finding it first. Right. And then like creates like a little like playboy mansion for himself. <laughs> and then the females like get really impressed by yeah, it could, it whatever territory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, yeah, the dwellers are just sort of hanging out in there. Yeah. But the, but the tunnel that I often work with are finding a source of dung, digging a tunnel below the dung, then they're bringing dung down into the bottom of the tunnel. So nothing else gets it. Right. They're like very greedy with their, yes. they're like, this is a treasure and everything's <laughs> going to want this. I better hide <laughs> it. better hide it underneath the pile of poop up top. Okay. Exactly. And then they're shaping the ball. They're spending all this time shaping the ball. And the tunnelers are? The, the tunnelers are. So the female phaneus that I work with, they, they put down sort of like anti-fungal um, properties down onto the ball. They shape it. It's, and it's a really impressive ball. If you, if you saw it, it's like a anywhere from a golf ball size to a racquetball size. And it's beautiful on the outside. It's got a, a thin layer of soil around the dung. And mm. they've put down some properties, you know, to, to keep other sort of microorganisms from, um, in, you know, eating, eating the dung or removing the dung from, the, from their offspring. And then they lay an egg. And that egg hatches into a larva, and the larva is what starts eating from the inside out. So it's in the eating, spring, in the yeah spring and summer, and usually by the fall, it's at least like in the third instar. So they have about five instars at least with phaneus. One ball, you got a whole summer worth of oh yeah meal for how many how many offspring are they? One offspring per ball. Whoa, I would have thought it'd be because a lot of insects, you throw like a thousand things out there and just see what happens. That's actually really good uh, and sort of astute observation because these beetles actually invest a lot in the spring. The size of their egg is almost half the size of a jelly bean. It's huge relative to the size of the beetle. Right. Um, Yeah, so she's laying an egg and then she backfills the tunnel. um, But then that, that egg hatches and then that offspring, everything that it has to eat, ever in its sort of juvenile sort of um you know pre-adult stage is in that dung ball so if she makes a small dung ball that offspring's going to be smaller than if she makes a bigger one whoa okay so what what kind of constraints are so uh, how many how many uh how many offspring i suppose this depends on the species Mm -hmm. as well so is it is it dependent on if, if you if you get like 20 dung balls, you can have 20 offspring if you're a female in a lot of species or are, are there other trade offs like, like you're needing to uh, uh, like this trade off of size, for mm-hmm. example, or are they I imagine they're laying far more than one a year, right? Yes. Yeah. And so those those phaneus that I work with, you were asking about lifespan, they can live for a couple of seasons. So so usually they're overwintering and they emerge as adults. So they're okay. young one year, emerge as adults, and then they can the next winter overwinter as adults. And does that make sense? So they can actually hibernate as adults. In the tunnels. In the yeah, they just sort of burrow down. Oh, yeah. So they can have multiple years of, of life. But you know, there's predators out there and um and of course, as you said, there are trade-offs. To, to sort of reproducing versus self-maintenance. 
putting energy into yourself. Um, but yeah, in terms of trade-offs, the most the, the largest number of brood balls I've heard of for a phaneous female, which is a larger dung beetle, was about 33 in her lifetime. The smaller dung beetles tend to have the live fast, die young sort of, you know, uh, life history where they are laying more eggs, having more offspring, but their chances of potentially, you know, having additional offspring in future years is, is well, not great because they usually don't live for very long. So are they like making a tunnel, the ones that you study, are they making a tunnel, putting a dung ball, and then building another tunnel for the next dung ball? Mm -hmm. Typically. And, and then are they, are, they, uh, are they doing any like bet hedging in terms of where they're building these? Are they, are, are they um, how kind of intentional is it in, in like, if you just come across some dung, do you just build a tunnel and and do the ball right there and lay your egg, or do you, do you have uh, other um, uh, in, environmental uh, triggers that they're that they have evolved to um, uh, pick up on? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there is a period of maturation. So once a, f a female emerges as an adult from the brood ball, she needs about a month to just eat dung. So I imagine, and that, and maybe not so much for males, but definitely the females. So they, they're spending some time eating dung. So she might arrive and not produce any, any brood balls. Um, but then once from, from my observations of breeding these beetles, this one species that I'm talking about, once they're mature and fertilized, they just produce. That's what I've noticed. Um, other dung beetles are already slightly different. So other large body dung beetles have, you know, chambers you were asking about in a single tunnel. Is it just one brood ball? Well, for Phaneas, yes. But for other dung beetles, they're making a bunch of sort of sausages all the way up and putting eggs in each one. Mm. Um, so various species depend on how they actually reproduce um well because it's strange like why wouldn't you just have a big old pile of dung and then lay a bunch of eggs in there and just see what because yeah. i mean that could be another another way of uh you know just kind of seeing seeing which offspring end up being the fittest or largest or yeah. i guess then there'd be pressure to hatch earlier than your siblings and Yep. And that's why a lot of the dwellers that we were talking about, that they just come in and reproduce right in the dung, they have a really fast generation time. So they're going from egg to adult really quickly. Mm -hmm. Whereas the phaneas, I mean, they take months, nine months, 10 months to develop. And so if they were an egg, they wouldn't have the time to actually develop. And there is select, you know, generally selection for larger body sizes and organisms. And that's because they are better competitors. And so there's this trade-off, right? So the smaller beetles can get in there and lay a bunch of eggs and reproduce faster so they have shorter generation times. But the larger-bodied individuals are investing more in sort of each, each individual offspring that is potentially a better competitor than sort of the smaller dung beetles. Mm. Male-female offspring, is there, uh, are we doing 50-50 with your average dung beetle or more, more females? We found, actually, we've done some warming experiments in the field, and we have found that um, there are more females in warmer treatments. We've seen more females. Mm -hmm. um, but, but on a regular basis, I haven't noticed. It's been 50-50. Mm. 
okay. the ones that we've we've been able to rear. Um, Phineas is harder to rear. They're the ones that live longer, so they're a little bit a little more finicky. Mm. Yeah. What about um, the uh, kind of some of the sexual dimorphism with the beetles? I I know you showed me ahead of time. I saw some uh, some horns and some heads of beetles so i take it those are males those are males yeah. yeah so the males have horns and in anthophagus taurus which is uh, a dung beetle that has been used in a lot of different types of research especially like developmental research um but also behavioral research um the there are two different sort of male morphs so there's the major males that have the big horns and minor males that have almost no horns really really small sort of almost non-existent Pathetic horns. Pathetic horns. Yeah, yeah. And um, those males are often sneaker males. And so the major males are hanging out in the tunnel protecting a female and, you know, essentially keeping out any other males from mating with her. But then you get these sneaker males that they, they're masquerading as females, oh, right? Nice. And then they sneak down and mate with her and yeah. take off. <laughs> I love the sneakers. A lot of fish do that. I didn't realize beetles. Yeah. Uh, as well. There's, what a, there's a lot of species that have the sneakers, right? Yeah. There's... I think some birds and. Birds too? Well, they, I, I should say they birds have extra, pair, they have have extra pair copulation, but probably not sneakers in the sense that they're uh, masquerading as females. Yeah. yeah. Masquerading yeah. as females. That's like usually a fish thing. Mm-hmm. Beetles do that too. That's fun, and they don't. It, it, so, so there's in that case. That's 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 there's sneaker males and the like alpha males or whatever that that are the two kinds of species. Or is it a lifespan development thing where where the the uh, juveniles are sneakers, and then as they like age and get older, they become the larger males with the big horns. Well, when they emerge, when these beetles emerge, they emerge in their full body size okay. with their full horns. So that's it. And it, it often, you know, in some of these situations comes down to uh, nutrition. So if a particular male didn't have enough nutrition, his horns might be smaller. Hmm. So smaller the ball, the more likely it's going to be a sneaker. Yeah. Or a small, yeah, smaller horn. And I'm, I'm trying to think about some of the other work that's been done on the sneakers because I, aside from nutrition, uh, I don't know if there are any other sort of environmental factors that impact whether it's a major or minor. Huh. Well, I, I wonder, I wonder how much selection pressure is going on there where, where like, it's not just about the females, um, ability to accrue enough dung to make a larger ball to make a uh, you know larger male and then sometimes coming up short so these so these sneakers um uh, uh, uh grow um uh, because there's the lack of resources but how it, there might just be a benefit to making sneakers sometimes and, and having that trade-off of the of the smaller ball, uh, kind of, because uh, some insects will kind of get a read on how many like males or females there are in an environment mm -hmm. sometimes, right? And yeah. Lay eggs yeah. and can kind of like select the gender of their offspring as they're as they're laying. Uh, yeah. do, be do beetles seemingly do anything like that? My my understanding of Anthophagus taurus is that the major males do better in terms of okay. fitness and sort of reproduction and breeding. Than the minor males, okay. and that the minor males, yeah, um, 
so that, so that I think, you know, in, in terms of selection, there's, there's certainly selection for a larger dung ball, but if a female, for example, shows up late to a dung pile, she might have a smaller dung, dung, dung ball or brood ball for the, her offspring, but at least she's producing a male that potentially, or female that could potentially reproduce, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think in general, though, the major males do better in terms of reproductive success. Are females larger than the males? Um, they can be, they can be larger. Yeah. So when we take measurements, you know, some of the females are quite large. There's a span. Hmm. Yeah. So even females have some body size variation. So your field work now that's in, that's in Knoxville. Yeah. Knoxville and Ecuador. Yeah. Comparative work. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you get to go back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's pretty fun. That's nice. <laughs> it is. Right. How, yeah. how often are you? Uh, how often are you in Ecuador? Usually once a year. Um, but the last year I went down was January of 2020, right before COVID. But before that, once a year it for about, how long? Yeah, once a year. Um, I only took a break, so all the way through graduate school. And then I maybe took two years off when I was going to Costa Rica instead. I mean, and when you go down to Ecuador, how long? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> both questions. Now I, get, now I understand, yeah. Um, usually, so usually about three months. Um, my more recent trips have been more like a month, month and a half. Yeah. Hmm. So are there, are there more, there, there must be a lot more species just in any continent around near the equator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Lots of diversity down there. It's huh. pretty incredible. Um, okay. Um, so, so what are what are some of the um, what are what are some of the questions that you're currently looking at? Yeah. So um, a big one is is about the impact of temperature variation on organisms, and so um, and sort of increases in temperature variation. And so a lot of my work has just on the off chance that for some reason the earth starts to say heat up or something like <laughs> exactly. that. What kind of? Exactly, what's gonna happen? Right. Yeah, um, yeah. and the reason I sort of got in this field is I mentioned you know, I was sort of interested in how differences in temperature affect or traits and adaptations of organisms. And if you think about the tropics, temperatures down there are really different than temperatures in a place like Wisconsin, right, where you mm -hmm. grew up. And so for a beetle that is in Wisconsin, you know, it's experiencing summer and winter. It's experiencing a lot of like sort of diurnal fluctuations as well. So that beetle should have a broad physiology. So the ability to handle really broad temperatures, right? So it's, it's equipped with its, you know, swim gear for the summer and it's, you know, boots and hat for the winter. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get down to the oh, tropics. Man. No, I can think about is boots and hat on a <laughs> beetle. Thanks for that. <laughs> I'm at, now I'm just having too much fun with the little cartoon in my head. And yeah. I, all right, I yeah. got a reset. Now I can pay attention again. Okay, what were you? I have a card for you. Yeah, I'll, I'll show it to you later. Uh, it's, a, it's a Santa hat on a dung beetle sitting on a ball. You know, Merry <laughs> Christmas. Anyway, <laughs> so, um, but then in the in the tropics, it's, you know, temperatures are really constant. So seasonally they're constant, but also day-night fluctuations aren't quite as great. And so basically those beetles year round are, are hanging out in their, in their swim gear. Right. And so they should essentially not, they don't evolution has led to sort of a narrower physiology, a narrow range of temperatures that they can handle. And because of that, we expect that with warming, with changes in temperature, those tropical beetles are going to have a harder time handling any warming. Right. And so that's essentially the big sort of 
thrust of my research over the past like five or 10 years. Um, but right now what we're, what we're doing is rather than saying, okay, we're going to hold you beetles in these incubators and see what happens to you, which is what we've been doing. Now I'm saying, oh, actually, I'm going to allow you to behave and, and do what you do in the wild and see if, if you can handle these shifts in temperature. Um, and so, so we're actually adding this behavioral component now to the lab. And so how we're doing this is um, we're, we're using these buckets either five gallon buckets or seven gallon buckets, depending on the size of the beetle. And we put these buckets down into the ground. So it's flush with the ground. And then in some of these buckets, we're putting dung and a female and allowing her to just do her thing, create her brood balls. And then in another bucket, we're putting these greenhouses that I designed. And I designed these greenhouses after these, well, it looks like the shape of a, of a dog cone. You know, so you take Fido to the vet and they're like, okay, we don't want Fido to, scratch at those, those uh, stitches or whatever. Um, it looks just like that, but it essentially heats up the bucket, the temperatures in the bucket. Mm. So, and it not only raises the average temperature, but it's, it's also changing the variance. So it's increasing the day to night fluctuations. And this is a really important layer to the research because so much of our climate change research has just looked at shifts in mean temperature. Right. Just say, okay, what happens when it warms? But temperatures are becoming more variable. Oh, yeah, with the uh, uh, as the ocean heats, molecules warming up, moving around more the, the weather currents and yeah. and things, so creating creating more extremes. Create like our sloth friends, for instance, having mm -hmm. drought. The the um, the global warming is actually creating cold extremes that are screwing mm -hmm. up their micro microbiome in yeah. their stomach and some of them are then dying because they starve because they can't process yeah um nutrition and, and so, yeah. so there's so so this is this is going to be something that will be impacting mm -hmm. everything in the right. or many things in the yeah the tropic yeah yeah, and so 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 uh, can you explain how the cone creates the variation? Yeah, so it's essentially you know so this cone is over the the bucket, and it has a little vent at the top, um, but it essentially functions like a greenhouse. So this the solar radiation is coming in during the day and it's heating up the the sort of soil surface, um, and then at night it, it cools down just like it would outside. So we're getting bigger fluxes because of this pretty big increase in warming during the day and then it's cooling down at night to essentially where it would cool down if mm. it, in the absence of the, the cone the sort of mini greenhouse. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, so then we're asking, you know, we're asking these questions about well, what happens to, to the offspring. So the females, what we've noticed, we've looked at three species now here in the temperate region and all three species have responded by burying their brood balls deeper. Mm. So they are, as More you go down consistent into consistent temperature. Yeah. And okay. so as you go down into the soil profile, not only do temperatures get cooler, but they, they get less variable. So if you keep digging down, you know, into the earth, it becomes much less variable than at the soil surface. How are they figuring, figuring it out? Probably isn't the right way to phrase things. Uh, but how, how are they able to make those adjustments? You you look at something like a, a sea turtle or something that that lays its eggs on on a beach or whatever, and it's like, 
Yeah, you, you change that environment. It's like, well, they're <laughs> still gonna lay yeah. the eggs where they lay the eggs, yeah. and that's that. How, yeah. How? What? What's? What's your sense of how? Because it it, it seems intuitive that you could measure um, stable temperature, like mm. knowing that it's uh, more warm or more cool, and then. Uh, that information triggering some sort of depth to bury a tunnel, but how how are they measuring variety of temperature in that? Impact? Yeah, and that's a that's a really good question. So I don't know if it's, for example, the maximum temperature that when these when these are heating up, oh, right? It's warmer. Okay. So you just need the one measurement. It, yeah, it could be that the variance is 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 really related to the maximum. I these see. are all sort of questions for that we're we're still sort of digging into so to speak that makes sense that makes sense though <laughs> yeah but, yeah but and then but, you just go deeper and it's cooler right and um and we did find that the at least in one of the species that um the mean temperature that so the what's so important about them digging deeper is that temperature affects the development of the offspring and has a major impact on offspring development. So they tend to develop faster in warmer temperatures, and then the beetles are also smaller in warmer temperatures. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, we found that the mean temperature was slightly warmer where the root balls were placed, even though she was digging deeper. The mean temperature was slightly warmer, but the variance was the same. Um, so, yeah, I, we don't quite know what they're queuing in on, but I will say, um, to your point about the 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 um, sea turtles, which I thought was a great one. Uh, the dung beetles like rollers, so they're rolling a dung ball away. They're burying that brood ball just below the soil surface. So I would liken them to a sea turtle where maybe they're, they're probably gonna have a tough time with climate change. But tunnelers, on the other hand, they've evolved to dig. And so there's probably been some selection for them to dig deeper in certain types of soil because soil has different properties and transfers heat differently. So over time, maybe there's been selection for them to, to, to be able to respond to differences in temperature. That said, we're also doing these studies in the tropics. And you can imagine down there, these tunneling dung beetles, maybe there's never any, been any sort of selective pressure for them to dig deeper because there's no variance in temperature, right? Mm. And so the, we're sort of running with this idea that maybe those tropical beetles are not going to dig deeper in a warmer environment. Mm. So we'll see keep you posted so you need to take that particular species in ecuador and do the same studies you're doing here there yep exactly and and the way that we're doing it um is in sort of all these sort of comparative frameworks you always want to have a closely related species in each location and so up here i have a phaneus beetle that i was talking about earlier that's one sort of tribe of dung beetles i have a closely matched member of that tribe and then we also have another tribe where we're matching them from Tennessee and Ecuador. And we do that three times. So then each of those comparisons, it's like comparing apples to apples, oranges to oranges, lemons to lemons, and see if we see the same thing across the, the sort of sites. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Hmm. So what what role do dung beetles have in an ecosystem? I imagine there's some stuff eating them. Uh, I'm, I mean, they're they're clearly, you know, they are um, uh, taking advantage of some of, uh, you know, they're taking advantage of waste in a system that a lot of other things potentially are. Though, if they're tunneling and are they mostly tunneling 
to hide the dung or, or to store the dung to keep it from just biodegrading or are they are they doing it to so that other beetles can't find it or they're just is there competition for this dung within other species and insects or what what's the advantage of of tunneling yeah well yeah tunneling is just sort of another way to to sort of you know uh remove the the resource that and yeah sequester it and squirrel it away so mm-hmm. that other organisms don't have access to it um and so yeah so that that's one way right some are rolling it some are, are tunneling right. um but they they also divide you know the time of day up so some beetles are active during the day some at night some are crepuscular so active during dawn and dusk mm. um that's another way that what's they, that word crepuscular Fun new word, everybody. Dawn and dusk, crepuscular. Um, humans are crepuscular. That's what we're. Instagram's very crepuscular. Oh, is that right? Well, I mean, I people know. are taking. I mean, in terms of what people find to be photogenic. Oh, you oh, know, you're right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's not a fact. That's just <laughs> okay. me riffing on a dumb. I thing. thought it was from some uh, scientist. No, no, no. It's like oh, fascinating. <laughs> Tell <laughs> no, me more. <laughs> no, uh, just people just like pictures of sunrise and sunset. Yeah. Um. So, so what are what are we getting out of di- like? I we give and oh, we give. Yes. All of us, man, so generously <laughs> give <laughs> give poop. them our poop. <laughs> what do we get out of this situation? Yeah. What what is What's the importance of your of your work mm-hmm. if someone's listening? They're like, oh, well, whatever it warms up, we lose all the dung beetles. Who cares? Okay. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, and they do love human poop, by the way. So it's one of their favorites. So I um, saw I saw your uh, I, I saw the uh, the fridge downstairs or whatever. We were st- is that students or is that or do you get that's cow dung. where do you that's cow dung? Okay. This seems like it seems like there's an obvious source. Yeah. Uh, no, we do use human for trapping because it's so much more attractive to the beetles. And so really? I always tell students when they come into the lab, you know, that if you're going to go out trapping, like you got to be comfortable with this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but we use cow dung in the lab because it's really not very offensive at all. And, uh, right. and the beetles, they, right. they like that too. So, um, so dung beetles actually provide a lot of ecosystem services. Um, so some really big ones are things like they're aerating the soil, which, which makes it, you know, um, essentially higher quality. They're also like putting, putting uh, nutrients down into the earth, into the earth by sort of moving this dung down, which makes it more accessible to things like plant roots. Right. Um, Oh, wow. So they're, they're, um, naturally, um, uh, ir- irrigating isn't the Fertilizing. word I'm looking for. What what what's the little thing where you poke a bunch of holes in your lawn? Oh, uh, I know the, what you're talking uh, about. Uh, uh, they're they're doing that kind yeah. of uh, naturally, and is, then is also that aerate? I think that's aerate. Aer- aerating. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. irrigating. That would be yeah, water, aerate. So yeah, aerating. Yeah, aerating. Yep. Okay, aerating. Um, naturally doing that, and then okay. putting some nutrients down into the soil for plants. And um, they are reducing pest and parasite. So it's particularly livestock. So because they are sequestering the dung and moving it, it's not available for things like flies and, you know, all the sort of pathogens that flies bring around Ah. to livestock. Yeah, it's another big thing. 
Because I was like, well, I was thinking, I mean, how you go to Ecuador or something, how many dung beetles are you, are, I mean, are you just like, are, are there dung beetles just all over the place? Or because how much, how much uh, aerating are, is, is happening? You would think like one tunnel, you'd yep. think you'd, you'd need to be making lots of tunnels for it to be having a positive impact in a, yeah. In, in in a region or, or in uh, in in the in a soil system, right? Places like you know more grassland areas, especially in the temperate region, or any sort of a lot of agricultural land like cattle ranches, you can go out into that field and it's beetles everywhere, right? Okay. So every single cow pie, places like that, I would see a lot of aeration being super important. Um, mm. But things like you know recycling nutrients and um, in, in the tropics, I think would be a big one, but probably not as much of the aeration because you're right. There are only certain like pockets of dung and that's happening over time and it's kind of patchy in space and in, and in time. Um, but another thing is there are really important secondary seed dispersers. So you can imagine like a black bear is eating some berries and then it's defecating those seeds. Rolling those seeds right down into the ground. Yeah. Oh, so that's a lucky seed to be. It is, yeah. It impacts its germination, plant growth, because obviously that seed is growing inside of dung. So, yeah, so really important secondary seed dispersers. And then they've also been shown to modify greenhouse gas emissions. In particular, methane gets reduced when you have dung beetles present. So the methane that's released from, like, cow pies. Which is an issue Which is for an issue. us. Yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. But in general, too, they've been used recently as a really important bioindicator. Um, they tell us something about the health of the ecosystem. So um, that's another the, reason they're why they're really useful. Canary in the coal mine, sort right. of. Yeah. And a big reason they're such a good bioindicator is because they're so easy to sample. You just go out and put out some dung, you put out some pitfall traps, and then you have a really good idea. And you can census them over time and in different locations and habitats. And so um, they're also important for for sort of science research on, on, you know, how well or what's the health of this ecosystem. Mm. Yeah. All right. A couple things as we wrap up one, what, what's some, uh, what's some mating behavior look like these, these guys have the, uh, that have the big thorn, uh, the big horns, mm -hmm. for example. Um, like, uh, so, so clearly fe females are, uh, are being picky or selective in, in in some way, they're not just uh, hooking up with the first dung beetle that they uh, that they run into. What's is there uh, is there that mating season just before springtime that happens, or how how do their mating systems typically work? Well, usually they're meeting at the dung source. So okay. whatever the dung source is, it's attracting a bunch of beetles. And that's club. where all the magic happens. And she yeah. decides. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. And all the inner organs of that, um, you know, some of it's happening inside of the dung too, like inside little chambers. And so it's some of it's been hard to observe. But yeah, she's selecting. Um, and then at least in, in the rollers, a lot of times it's the male that's creating the ball and he's rolling it away and the female is riding on top. So... Again, I don't know exactly. She's how riding she on top of it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's like they're like um, convertible or something. <laughs> like that's exactly. that's like uh, that's how you that's how you woo a lady. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> what's what's uh, 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 what's 
what's some, what's something like very strange or mysterious um, about dung beetle? Hit me with like a, you got like a dung beetle fun fact maybe because the rollers, they get all the action. They get all the, uh, we've all seen the rollers in the mm-hmm. nature documentaries. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there anything about the tunnelers there? Am, am I putting you on the spot right no, now? No, no. Um, I mean, one kind of fun thing is that out the Vegas Taurus, which is one of the tunnelers, um, is, has been dubbed the world's strongest insect. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So they did kind of a neat study where they had it attached to pulley system mm-hmm. and they were dripping water into this container, I guess a bucket that was, you know, all again, attached to the back of this, of this beetle. And they found that it was able to hold onto the surface, you know, relative to its weight more than any other, other organism. So, or, well, at least from what they tested. So, so that's sort of a cool one. They're quite strong. Um, I'm trying to think of some others. That's Very one confused to- beetle <laughs> on that day. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of a fun experimental design, though. I give them credit for that. I, I like fun experimental designs. Oh, you know, sure, with these like, crazy things of how to test, you know, yeah. how are we going to test the strongest beetle, the strongest, you know, insect? Um, of course, the Egyptians really um, sort of had, at least in their sort of religion, had a lot to do with dung beetles. They were. The, the dung beetle was seen as sort of one of the gods, like rolling the ball was, it was, what was likened to the sun god. Oh the sun yeah, god, you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think I, I'm trying to think, I don't know. I don't know. Other than the fact that they're just really charming and charismatic and cool. And yeah. And, uh, and the canaries in the coal mine for, for, um, potential, um, uh, issues. So, um, is there, is there anything, in particular that so we know um climate is changing it's causing this variables and temperatures and and um and then there's habitat loss and is there anything in particular that uh, impacts dung beetles more specifically than a lot of other species as a whole Yep. Some of the sort of antibiotics and like ivermectin that folks give to their cattle really impact dung beetles. And the reason is because the dung beetle offspring and the adults, they require these microbes in their gut to process the dung. And if you're killing bacteria, right? So, so they're eating the dung and the dung has these antibiotics or ivermectin. It's sort of killing the sort of micro, the microfauna that they need. And uh, flora and fauna that they need to to actually process the um, the dung, and so that yeah. And I and anecdotally, I have a an undergraduate student who worked in my lab who said that his uncle had lost all of the dung beetles on his farm, on his ranch because essentially it was probably related to this. Um, yeah, probably related to using something on the cattle that then wiped out the dung beetles. Okay. Well, <laughs> if, if people want to find more about your lab. Um, well, the, the University of Tennessee College of Evolution and Biology um, website has a link to my website, um, and my, my actual website is biogeographyresearch.org. Wonderful. So, it's fun to hear you about dung beetles. I like the way you think about them. Thank you so much, Kimberly, <laughs> yeah. for joining me. And 
And if you want to support the show, patreon.com slash Shane Moss. Thank you guys so much for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll see you next week.